Hello, Great Minds. It's Tuesday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History. So welcome to the show, everyone. As you know, it is the DGMH off-season, and that means that I am not recording any new content, but I didn't want to leave you, all my beloved listeners, any fan of the show, without any content to check out. So I asked around. A a few friends are going to help me out from some of my favorite podcasts, and we will be airing a few feed drops for you to listen to, and you should totally, if you enjoy, which you totally fucking will, I know it, uh, enjoy these podcasts, then please go check them out and support their shows as well. Beyond that, I'll also be releasing some of our exclusive Patreon content just for you to check out. And if you find yourself loving that content so much, then you can get access to it over on the DGMH Patreon page, where listeners can support the show and get access to content on all sorts of things, from the Crusades to the Bourbon reforms in Spanish America to the Thirty Years' War, plus all sorts of other random content uh, from your favorite Twist of Psych and Shots Heard Around the World episodes. Plus, I talk about what I'm teaching, and so, so, so much more. And never forget Cullen Chats China and Pete Chats Portugal, which you will get access to in the off-season, a few episodes here and there. Of course, all your favorite Patreon content will still be coming your way, save last call episodes, but I'm sure I'll find a way to fill that void with a little bit of bonus content somewhere. Uh, So, you know. Other than that, thank you for supporting the show. I hope you enjoy this off-season bonus content that's coming your way. And as always, cheers. Octavia literally just sprinted across the house for me to try and go into the bed with the cats. Hello, baby. Latte <laughs> is here for Pete Chats Portugal. <laughs> Like, <laughs> does he play nice with the cats latte yeah she's wonderful with the kitty she, she loves the one she likes the both she loves everything and everyone but hey thanks for a- all the uh, press you're giving me about my poems i, I, really I enjoy your that. poems and i enjoy your support i mean you are right now contributing to one two i mean all the pre all the pre-games that you're part of your own series which you're going to do during your sabbatical and as much as you want after and you know cullen chats china and peach chats portugal that's a team effort I, I appreciate it. So anything I can do, to I enjoy it. It's, it's you. fun. I you do know, too. Talking about history is what we do for a living. Right. So. And I mean, in one hour, I with this, I get on here. I do a pre-record before you come on for one of my things. Then we do a pre-game, which is great for an extra top tier thing. And then we get two or three episodes of pre-game content. And it's it's just like one hour, yeah, and we get so much content. So, uh, y- awesome. you know, it's it's great, and I really enjoy it. Or you're fine. Oh, my yeah. dog is being a brat. Lay down. All right. So, listeners, welcome to Pete Chats Portugal. Uh, Colin. Oh, it's some history for you. No, you don't just sing the song. We don't sing on this part. This is where you you say. What are you you talking about today, (laughs) Zach? Well, Cullen, I thought I would go ahead and talk about one of my favorite figures in Portuguese history the Grocer King. So, Colin, I have a little question for you. What were some of the things you picked up on your last visit to the grocery store? Oh, I got avocados. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I got blueberries, uh, peppers. Okay. Uh, coffee. Okay. 
and uh, Creamer. And okay. Um, I didn't well, get none any of that added. fucking helps me. All right. Yeah. <laughs> for the for Are like you sure fruit. you didn't pick up nutmeg That's or right. sugar or oh, anything? No. <laughs> No, uh, no, that's that's totally fine. I figured I'd see if I'd get lucky there and you said like cinnamon or sugar or something, but no, that's okay. So we are going to discuss the Grocer King, a king who got his nickname, also known as the Colonizer King, uh, but the Grocer King, Zhao III. Uh, so this is Zhao III, King of Portugal, who reigned from 1521 to 1527. He was the king that came to control sugar, spice, and just about everything nice plus people, which was not fucking nice at all. That is to say, he is going to be the monarch of Portugal who monopolizes sugar in Brazil, spices in the East, and the slave trade in Africa. Uh, you know, obviously, that's that's an atrocity. Uh, so we need, to, we need to note that slavery is god-awful because in talking about economics of an empire and the success of a monarch, one of the things my students always struggle with is the inhumanity of discussing one of the things that they did to make their empire stronger was introducing slave labor. And we're going to talk about that today, yeah. but we need to get it out of the way. Fucking terrible. I mean, just, I, I don't. And the Portuguese were, were essential in that whole transatlantic slave trade of the whole middle passage. That was their the, gig, man. The debate we have about who's most responsible always falls back to the Portuguese. A Portugal and Brazil imported the most Af enslaved Africans. B they relied most on the most amount of goods that relied on African slave labor. And and, and C, I think I was saying ABC, yeah, C, they did it the longest. So, and at various points in their history, they were responsible for importing all enslaved Africans to Spanish territories. So didn't, didn't Brazil, they were the last ones to give up their slaves. Absolutely. Absolutely. 1888. Second, uh, it goes 65 for the United States, 86 for Cuba. And uh, that would be Spanish Cuba and 88 for Brazil. Uh, and that was only after they had welcomed about five to 8,000 runaway Confederates. Oh so that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, though. Uh, so back to Zhao III, King of Portugal, 1521 to 15, uh, Side note, he is the grandson of the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, married to not Catherine of Aragon, uh, but another yeah. one of their daughters. Uh, that's to say his mother was one of their daughters. Uh, and he was only 19 when he became king. So, you know, we're looking at a, I don't know what, 36-year reign, but of a was, young, able king. Yeah. Was he a playboy of something? Like, when he was young, did he have, like, uh, a wild uh, life? Not or? that I, I mean, I know he married an Austrian princess. Uh, keeping, okay. you know, ties to the Habsburgs was always a little bit smart with Spain on your borders. Uh, you know, Portugal's always looking to maintain peace with Spain as much as possible, but Spain's always looking to, like, take over Portugal. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know about his... I, I actually didn't research his background that much because, in all honesty, I think I have this on the, the notes somewhere. I do plan when I decide... When I finally have the listenership to be able to talk about a Portuguese monarch on the show, I plan to cover him as a great mind because I find him so cool. Uh, so we will be back to Shaw the Third, but I need a steady listenership to bust out a Portuguese great king for a great mind. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, sugar spice—that is going to be what we're talking about today. He is the post da Gama king, all right. So he is the king to really be able to see the advantages of an Indian colonial empire and a colony, uh, colonial established colonial system in the Indies. So da Gama is landing around 1500. 
it is in the next 20 years that they begin to monopolize and dominate and get their chokehold points on the Indies and India and really control that trade, have a monopoly over it. But they also, at the same time as we discussed last time, have Brazil. And it wasn't yeah. until the 1530s that somebody said, fuck, Brazil's there, and shit, we better make sure the French don't take it. And when the French tried and we paid them off to leave, we're like, we need to do something to shore this up and make sure it stays ours. So what I will say, he's the post Gama king, and I do think, let me scroll down to my notes, I have Diaz and Gama as my next topic, because we need to talk about Gama. My plan's kind of to talk about Zhao III in Brazil today, and then talk about Gama next week and then talk about Zhao III and the early empire in the Indies and India. So we're not going to focus even on spices today, but I tell you this because that's why he gets his name, the Grocer King. He had an empire of sugar and spices, cinnamons, nutmeg. Everything you would see in the spice aisle was the breadbasket of his empire. Breadbasket means you eat, I guess. I don't know. It made him all the fucking money he could ever need. All right? Uh, so I, I will say by the end of his reign, he rolled over an empire spanning more than 1.5 miles in like length in connectivity right no it's not square like square miles 1.5 million square miles of land he controlled and claimed i'm sorry not like yeah that's like bigger than the yeah. earth you said 1.5 miles i was like 1.5 million million miles square miles got it, got it. all right ironically though he was the one who began the process of abandoning territorial expansion in muslim north africa because you know he decided that trade was more favorable or beneficial for him than defeating and conquering muslim lands in north africa uh, he was one of the earliest colonizers and imperialists. If I'm going to be totally honest, when we look at the age of colonialism and imperialism, the Portuguese Feitoria system and colonization of Brazil and the Indies was kind of pioneering the efforts. It froze again. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I yeah. lost you on colonizer and Feitoria system, you said? That was the Portuguese outpost trade post system. I was just kind of saying that, like, uh, he he's going to uh, – he is basically one of the earliest true imperialists, if you ask me. I mean, his his empire is, like, even, I mean, Spain's got new Spain by this point, but like he's got an established system that's been working out the, the uh, you know, the kinks and the curves and the oddballs since the 1400s. Question, yeah. Did he, <laughs> uh, is he the one that implemented the Captain C program? Uh, I remember Brazil being broken into. So let's look at that. <laughs> Actually, since I'm thinking of covering him down the road, uh, you know. Or am I jumping the gun? Oh, no. You, well, you jumped a gun by two seconds. It's my next bullet. So uh, today we're going to focus on his, his issues, his guidance in Brazil. But Cullen's absolutely right. He is the one who establishes something called the captaincy system. Uh, and since I am planning on covering him down the road, you know, this is going to be a fast version. But I will hopefully be able to dive into all the changes in the world because of his reign, during his reign. And that's kind of a question we'll ask today. Uh, but today I wanted to focus on his rule over Brazil uh, because we talked about Brazil last time. But note that he was the monarch that established the Portuguese dominance of the East Indian spice trade and trade in India. He's also the monarch who established the Portuguese Inquisition and the colonial center of Gao in India. Uh, and we're saving again all that for another day because today we're going to talk about Brazil. So the first thing we need to talk about is his introduction of the captaincy system in the 1530s. All right. So essentially, he took the Tordesilla line that ran down Brazil, his, his western border of Brazil, and he drew a line to the coast from that down pretty much equal amounts, roughly equal amounts of land. Uh, in 1534, yeah. he established 12 colonies. And there would be varying numbers. Uh, I think a very points were 13, 14, 15 uh, captaincies. They were ruled by what were called donatarios, or basically they were donatary systems. They were like land grants to people who he owed money to or he could ennobilize or owed loyalty to. 
And they were given the position of captain general, head of the captaincies. And almost every single one of them fucking failed. All right. They didn't, they traded in Brazil wood early on. It became less and less profitable. And sugar, the only ones that were successful were Pernambuco and I believe Baja and maybe a little bit in Sapalo or Savacente. I know some Southern district was doing okay, but basically the areas where they focus on the cultivation of sugar cane were the areas that were being done or uh, were growing successfully. So one thing that I really like to note about Jao III to my students is that he not only made the captaincy system in the 1530s, but by 1549, when he had realized the captaincies had totally failed, he didn't just truck along. He said, well, fuck that. We're reforming it. He, he reformed his own idea. And to me, that's the sign of a decent-minded leader. Like, that's yeah. something you don't see. Normally, they're just, like, they're just like, no, no, no. It'll work itself out. The next generation can handle right. that. Power you, you know? it. And I'm just yeah. like, this guy's saying, I got an idea. We're going to try it. Fuck, that didn't work. Well, let's try something different. Instead, yeah. he doesn't try something different. He keeps the captaincy system, but then he creates what's called the Governor General of Brazil. All right, which is basically saying, we're going to have kind of captaincies, but we're going to take them over as a royal set of colonies. And we're going to put one guy in charge of them all, a governor general named Tomei de Souza of the prominent and wealthy Souza family of Portuguese history. Uh, recently, uh, fairly recently tied to this moment in history, you know, he's, they were ennobilized, uh, ennobled. But, uh, and this is where the legacy of the two get blurred here. You know, I sit here and I always teach my students about Tomei de Souza, but Jao III appointed him. And since I'm talking about Jao III today, I think he froze again. I'm going to wait till you don't freeze. Oh, there you are. You're not frozen. All right. So 1549 governor general. Uh, any thoughts, questions before we move on? Uh, well, uh, this D'Souza, I've heard this name before. Um, and I'm, I'm probably, wasn't there a royal, a back, back in, in Portugal? Wasn't there a D'Souza royalty? I, I don't, there wasn't a line. There's the Braganzas, the Avis, the Habsburgs. Uh, okay. But they might've married into the family at some point or something like that. But the the Sousa, the D'Souza family was were prominent people in Portuguese history in the colonial period throughout because basically because of the success of Tomé de Souza and his father and his successors maintained some significance afterwards. So, huh. under the direction of Tomé de Souza, who was given central authority in the name of the king and along working alongside as much as possible as the king, he goes over to Brazil and begins reforming in Jao the Third's name. So under Jao the Third's direction, Brazil becomes an economic powerhouse, all right? Uh, first thing that Tomé de Souza does is he creates Salvador de Baja, a centralized capital in all of Brazil. Basically, it would be the capital of colonial Brazil. No longer would there be 13 little colonies. There would still be those lines still existed, but there's going to be a central point of government, all right, from which he will rule and regulate. And he began not only intensifying sugar planting and sugar plantations through all of Brazil's coastline, but also regulating it and ensuring that taxation was collected properly, etc. And sugarcane is one of those interesting things. The Ingenho system, or the sugar engine as it's called, the sugar mill, was, uh, was a staple of Brazil. Basically, you had to harvest and produce sugar before you could ship it. It's one of the rare things that was actually manufactured into its finished product in the New World before it was shipped. So it had to be regulated on the ground. It couldn't just be regulated by a tax collector. So, you know, the, en the sugar engine is going to see a lot of reform in this period. And he's also the one to step up, and this is where we get into the questionable legacy part here, the use of African slave labor. Where have we seen this before? 
the Azores and Madeira Islands. Massive sugar mm-hmm. plantations, mm-hmm. cheap labor force, big profits. He's replicating yeah. what worked over there. Also, he's responsible for intensification of the uh, presence of the Jesuit order. He actually brought the first Jesuits over to, to Brazil to Christianize the indigenous population. And when we say Christianize, we really mean control with the threat of internal <laughs> eternal damnation. Uh, you know, so I was going to go there. I was going to ask you what was the role of the church at this time and the yes. Jesuits. And well, the Jesuits have control. You know, you know, you know, no one better than your parish priest. And the Jesuits will have control of the indigenous population, and that they will also be laborers here uh, as they are, you know, further and further colonized. So, uh, but really, the labor force is replaced with African slave labor. Uh, that is a Souza Shah the Third staple here. Uh, and actually, it was Tomei de Souza during Jao III's reign who suggested that the colonization and settlement of Rio de Janeiro might be beneficial in the long run. And eventually, Rio would become the colonial capital. Um, yeah. What was his relationship with the native indigenous population, like the Indians that lived there before they died of disease, of course? So I mean, per the doctrine of... De- well, they didn't die as much of disease because they fled inland and then kind of developed mild toleration. So the Tupi tribes didn't totally die out. Uh, okay. At least not right now, or not just by disease that I know of. But as far as by the time of Zhao's reign, the doctrine of discovery has pretty much firmly established that you are to convert and Christianize the indigenous population. However, they would work the sugar plantations, but I'm sure they had to be in some ways paid. But they probably it was probably a form of pseudo slavery. But the sugar plantations were primarily primarily worked by brutally treated uh, African enslaved enslaved Africans. Uh, wow. I mean, this is the the areas where we'll see all sorts of terrible, tragic innovations of the sugar plantation first implemented. That being said, um, J- Tomei de Souza reformed the colony in five years. Five years. And then he returned to Portugal in 1553 to work alongside the king and advise the officials that he was allowed to appoint in the Americas to watch over it in his absence. So Tomei de Souza and John III are like the, the, the power team. And most often that's the case. For every Louis XIV, well, Louis XIV might be the exception. But, well, no, there was a Colbert, there was a Mazarin, there was a Richelieu, there was a Count Duke, there was a, you know, so many. Everybody had a, a sidekick that helped them, and Tomé de Souza really was his. Uh, and, mm. and as a result, from about 15, the 1550s through to the 1650s, when uh, the British and the French and the, you know, other, the Dutch start getting really heavily involved in the sugar trade, and obviously the Iberian Union and the fall of Portugal to the Habsburg dynasty really hurts them as well. For 100 years, Portugal was, Portuguese Brazil was the sugar trade. All right. There is no one else is importing the same number of enslaved Africans. No one else is outputting them, producing as much output in terms of sugar. It is a monopoly and they are getting filthy rich until, of course, the Iberian Union in 1580. They've got spices, they've got sugar, and they've got a monopoly over both. And no one wants anything more than those two things. Right. As to the question, who deserves credit? Who made Brazil a success? who made it into the leading sugar producer for the old and new world for the entire 16th, 16th century until it was displaced by the Caribbean? Who was the real grocer? Probably Tomé de Souza. But then again, it was Charles III who had the foresight to delegate an official like him and the, the decision to, to, to regulate when he had already failed to regulate once, uh, to re-regulate. So I got to give our grocer, King Charles III, a, a, a tip of the hat. Uh, but that's my and story. So Especially with, uh, you know, back in the age of monarchs, they never wanted to appear to second guess anything. Even themselves. That's a sign of weakness. Yes. And 
for a monarch of all people to be like, hey, guys, I think this isn't working. I'm going to change right. tack here. Right. Wow, that's revolutionary. It, that's it is. Of. I mean, I don't know who I'm sure he had advisors proposing it to him, but you're right. It's the stubbornness of man, the stubbornness of kings and queens, women alike, I should say. Uh, it is the stubbornness of mankind to not see our own faults. And I, I see that as a, a shining moment. Huge. Yeah. And, you wow. know, I have a, I, every year I have somebody who wants to approach Portugal because of my love for it. They fall in love with it. And somebody always tries to do like this this piece of Portuguese history, whether it's the sugar trade, slavery, or mm -hmm. Jao III or Tomei de Souza. And I, I support it as a great essay topic. But they struggle with the dehumanization of yeah. the slave trade. And, and the numbers can be hard to find exactly. But, you know, there's no way around it. Somebody, somebody, somebody yeah. said, well, you know, really... Sugar was displaced by Caribbean sugar trade. Portuguese-Brazil sugar trade was displaced by rivals. And the coffee trade would become equally, if not more important, as would gold in the 1690s. All topics for another day. And I have to say them every time. I'm like, but did Zhao III's reign witness any moment of failure in the sugar trade? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, no, exactly. You wow. can't think of everything that came after all the time. If you're evaluating one person sugar became portugal's cash cow you know yeah, alongside yeah. spices and it's it's just you hear the word uh the word sugar mill and it doesn't convey exactly what that means so you know, the you, sugar the oh, ingenho oh, as they were called in brazil uh i i typically tell the story of the ingenho as uh one primary account said something like it was not uncommon to see a one-armed man walking down the streets of rio de janeiro uh, basically at the sugar engines, at the grinders, there would always be a man with a machete uh, because if someone got caught, that arm was getting cut off. And uh, that, that is just one example of the tragedy of, of the, 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 you know, African slave. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and, 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 and talk about piece of shitness, not to spoil the conversation when I finally cover him. You can hear how he'd be a great topic though. I mean, so much world history, beautiful impact, forgotten footprint, and uh, big piece of shit points here because... Well, and I was thinking the same thing, Zach. I thought, wow, this, this guy would have made a great mind other than it, the whole slavery issue. Well, like I mean, it doesn't, he'll, he'll still be a great mind. He'll just be a piece of shit, too. And we'll see yeah. how that all plays out because, you know, we really, he's responsible for the intensification of sugar and slavery, and the two go hand in hand, direct positive correlation. But right. the reality right. is, it continued to greatly intensify after his reign under Habsburg rule as well. Uh, so you know, uh, this is a, a, a sugar question, I guess. But did the Portuguese create a molasses industry that later the Caribbean would create, like in Haiti and those places that would like? So you know, I don't take their know. I don't know what uh, what well, they did. Molasses was portable sugar, and then they could use it to make rum, obviously, which is right. Why. It was like the syrup. It was like the byproduct of manufacturing sugar was the syrup left yes. in the bottom of the basins, and then molasses. So I like, but I've always understood it as like that was something that colonials were like willing, free, and willing to trade in themselves. You know, that was kind of right. like a colonial market because it's like. Yeah. Well, why the fuck do we care what you do with molasses? And then even the British slap a molasses act on them because they realized the profitability from Boston. I mean, I Boston know, made its fortune with molasses. Right. Yeah. And rum yeah. and molasses was one of the things that the New Englanders traded directly to Africa at times. Uh, I've, I've read. So traders yep. could do that. So yeah. it was like a weird cross cut of the mother country. So yeah. I don't the know China. the answer about molasses in Portugal. 
Um, but I thought with the sugar and the sugar, but I'm sure there was some sort of industry for Brazilian rum trade never really took off. Uh, mm. You know, mm -hmm. like you never hear about Brazilian rum. So, no, you never hear about that. No, let's, let's. I mean, we have a second. So Brazil. Oh, it looks like it's going to take a deeper dive because uh, it's talking about all about modern Brazilian molasses. Yeah, it's probably so. not known for that. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's that's interesting. Guess, so would it be brown sugar? That that's what that's what, as originally. Well, I mean, uh, white sugar is just bleached sugar cane, basically. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's brown sugar. All of it's brown sugar. Yeah, and it's rawest form. Sugar in the raw, basically. If you open a pack of sugar in the raw, that's what we're talking about here. All right. Well, are you back? Okay, you're not frozen. frozen. All right. Well, any other okay, questions yeah, about I, about John the Third? Yeah, I opened a browser. No, uh, no, that was very interesting. I really appreciate. I really awesome. Well, uh, you know, my plan is next time to talk about the exploration of India and then go into back to John the Third and what he did in India and what his successors did in India, uh, and then we'll take a pause from all this colonization stuff. And I have uh, a few other people I'd like to discuss, including a little bit on Japan and China. Uh, so maybe some of these Cullen chats, China, Portuguese. Pete Chats Portugal episodes are going to have some overlap here. Um, so, cool. well, uh, listeners, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is available, I believe, to everybody from the uh, uh, Great Minds and Up, the $5 level and up. So thank you to all who support the show. Uh, we very much appreciate you, and I hope you enjoyed this round of Pete Chats Portugal. So um, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.